the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. Eight of the top ten Irish companies choose to do business with us. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week we're talking about the business of sport and specifically the Rugby World Cup in Japan. And I'm joined by my co-host, Michael O'Keefe of Teneo. Michael, you're very welcome. Thank you, Kieran. Great to be now, here. We, uh, the Rugby World Cup obviously uh, kicked off last weekend and it seems to have gone well. It's been uh, hosted in Japan, a non-traditional rugby playing nation, uh, a very uh, spectacular opening ceremony. I think some interesting uh, early games, shall we say, a big uh, shock today with Uruguay beating Fiji. And it looks like a happy Irish contingent. Certainly they were happy after the comprehensive win over Scotland last weekend. And of course, we played a host nation, Japan, this weekend. How do you think it's shaping up? I think it's been great. I think um, whatever way the fixtures fell, I think we've had a magnificent opening weekend. Stadiums were full. There seems to be a great buzz about the place. Um, and I think it's off to a really good start. There's been no controversies. Um, and the games have been really good. Um, you know, no major injury, you know, scares and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I think World Rugby would be delighted with how it's all started. Um, like it costs a lot of money to put this thing on. Um, it's a risk taking it to a non-rugby playing nation like Japan. But if World Rugby are going to grow the game, they need to they need to take a chance. And I think so far it's been a really big success. Uh, very shortly, we're going to be talking to Ed Dixon of Sports Pro Media. He's just going to give us a, a bit of a general overview of the Rugby World Cup and the finances and the hosting of it and all of that kind of stuff. And then later on in the show, we're going to be joined by Sean Cavanagh, Global Director at Pentland Brands, whose uh, suite of brands includes Canterbury, uh, who, of course, are the kit makers for the Irish Rugby team and others at the Rugby World Cup. Um, and uh, Porrick Power, Commercial and Marketing Director at the IRFU, and I'm certainly hoping that he can give us uh, some insights into how important the Rugby World Cup is to the RFU commercially. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think we've got a very interesting show coming up. Um, Ed will set the scene, and the two guys will come in and give 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 us their interesting perspectives as well. Um, a lot in the, a lot in the line for everybody associated with the World Cup. Um, you know, some people saying it's the third biggest sporting competition on the, on the planet, um, and certainly it's grown grown substantially since the first days of 1987 when New Zealand won the first World Cup. Yeah, and hopefully Ireland can get uh, beyond the quarter-final stage, finally, uh, in the ninth edition of this tournament. OK, let's uh, press on. Now, delighted that Ed Dixon is joining us on the line from London. Ed, you're very welcome to Inside Business. Ed, this is the ninth uh, Rugby World Cup and the first time it's been held in a non-traditional rugby-playing nation, if you like, in, in Japan. Just give us a, a sense of the size and scale of the Rugby World Cup and where it sits in the global calendar uh, vis-a-vis, let's say, the Olympics or the Soccer World Cup or other big tournaments like that? Thanks for having me, guys. I would say if you compare it to other other events like the Olympics and the World Cup, inevitably the Rugby World Cup is going to fall slightly behind. It's it, There are much less nations competing, the number of athletes, uh, less attendances, uh, less, less t- TV audience. But um, I think as a whole, where, where, the, where the Rugby World Cup does really stand up is, is through ticket sales. So if you look at um, ticket sales for this, for this uh, tournament already, um, the it sold on the eve of the tournament. It sold about 1.8 million tickets, which is about 96% of the tickets available. If you compare that to Russia 2018, which sold about 2.4 million tickets on the eve of the tournament, that is slightly more. But um, that was mainly down to the fact, obviously, the stadiums are bigger, things like that. But that was accounted for about 90% of tickets available. So I think pound for pound, the Rugby World Cup. Um, it performs very, very well, particularly on a commercial standpoint. And just tell us a little bit about how the tournament has grown. I mean, the first edition was in 1987, and I think it was uh, it was 
probably running a bit of a, a shoestring. And it was they were testing the waters with it. They'd never done anything like this before in World Rugby, but it's 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 a very big tournament now, as you mentioned. One point eight million tickets sold on the eve of the tournament is uh, is quite phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, it has as as you say, it it it, it was. Um running a bit of a budget in 19, in back, back when it first started. It has enjoyed steady growth in, in recent years. I think what is interesting, just before the tournament started, um, the CEO of World Rugby, Brett Gosper, he pointed out that they expect commercial revenues to be higher in Japan than they were for England, um, which may surprise a few people, giving Japan's obviously not a still not a huge rugby, massive rugby-playing nation. I think they're expecting, expecting the tournament to bring in about $449 million dollars which is quite a marked increase on the last on the last tournament. I think an interesting stat that has come out as well is that um, the merchandise sales of the tour uh, for this tournament online have already outperformed um, the Rugby World Cup in 2015 by more than 50 percent, um, which has been aided by making um, making products available in more than 75 countries. So it shows that um, the you know World Rugby Rugby World Cup's got faith that the brand is spreading, and I think they've done that by sort of making 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 it more available in more and more countries this year. Ed, it's um, Mick O'Keefe here. Um, just in terms of inbound tourist numbers and inbound uh, fans, how many are we expected to to hit Japan? Do you think over the next four to five weeks? I think they the the organisers are banking on about four hundred thousand visiting. Um, I think they've I think stats have come out to say that about six hundred thousand tickets have been sold to foreign fans, but obviously fans were buying multiple tickets and stuff like that. But they're expecting about four hundred thousand. I think uh, as well that they're that should be an actual a further boost to the Japanese economy is the fact that obviously because Japan it's off the beaten track for a lot of countries compared to when say it would be held in a European nation. So they're banking on them staying for longer and crucially spending more, which is going to um, you know increase re- increase revenues, increase the money coming in. So yeah, they're, they're expecting about four hundred thousand visitors, give or take. And how much um, did um, Japan have to pay to to underwrite the hosting of this tournament? I think that number has without wanting to speculate too much several figures have been um kind of bounded around i think what is key though is that japan the fact that they're hosting the world cup it 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 plays into their um that part of the government's plan to expand the country's sports related market um so i think however much they are spending which is you know has been flattered around quite a lot is um it's all part forms part of their plan to increase the sports related market from about 5.5 trillion yen to about 10 trillion yen by 2020. So yeah, I, 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 th- I, I think the number I have, I think, is just over 100 million. Um, I think in, back in 2011, it was half that. It was about 55 million. Yeah. So it's it's obviously money well spent from their perspective. And just one other question I have for you um, on um, the, the, the choice of Japan as the host. Um, look, and a lot of people have welcomed it in terms of the growth of the global game. But um, do you think it's a mistake handing a, a major tournament like the Rugby World Cup to a country a year before they're supposed to host a, an, an Olympics? I think I think that's quite. I can under, I can understand the scepticism for that as well. Um, a similar thing was levelled at um, Brazil when they hosted the World Cup into the Football World Cup in 2014, and then the Olympics two years later. And obviously, that's less financially. Um, has less financial clout than Japan. I think. I think what is key to point out though is that um, Japan's been in every Rugby World Cup uh, since it started. Obviously, it hasn't been embraced like, say, football or baseball. But um, I think. I think crucially, World Rugby saw that as as an opportunity. Uh, they saw it as a way to grow, to take the sport rather away from the strongholds of, of you know, New Zealand, Australia, Europe, sort of traditional hosts like that, and take it to a new territory. I think. 
as I think as well as I mean, I mentioned earlier that it, it forms part of the government's plan to expand the country. Japan were awarded the Rugby World Cup in 2009. And then the IOC named them as hosts for the Olympics. Uh, I think it was in 20. I think it was in 2012. It may have been off the top of my head. So, you know, they, there was a bit of a gap. It's um, it's 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 not like, um they were awarded them both on the same day. So the I, the rugby world, uh, world rugby got in there first, and I think the IOC would have been aware of the potential impact on the infrastructure as well. And I think Japan, what has also helped its cause as well, it's um, a lot. It's already got a lot of that infrastructure in place. It's still it made a huge, huge investment when it first hosted the FIFA World Cup in 2002. Uh, made made a number of new stadiums there, and it's. Um, and it's still reusing a lot of them for this tournament. So the infrastructure was in place. And I think the fact that it had that coupled with the fact that more and more, more and more of its population are showing an interest in the sport, I think made it an ideal host for the for, for world rugby. Ed, can I ask you, you, I mean, some big numbers now around Rugby World Cup. Ireland bid for the 2023 tournament, but we lost out ultimately to France. And we thought we were in, in with a great chance. We'd kind of persuaded ourselves that we were going to get it because, you know, we love our rugby and we're lovely people and we uh, were great hosts and we have Guinness and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but in fact, France uh, won out and France really won out, uh, it turns out, because A, they were probably better at lobbying, but B, um, the numbers um, that France put on the table simply uh, out you know, just sort of outsized what anything Ireland uh, could offer and it's a bigger population country and they use their kind of financial muscle and political muscle, if you like, uh, to win the tournament. So I'm just wondering, looking down the track, do you think there's any chance of Ireland ever being able to host this tournament on its own, given the way Rugby World Cup has grown uh, into this sort of big uh, global financial tournament? Well, I give it to you guys in a heartbeat. I think you'd be great hosts. Host. I sadly don't really have the clout of world rugby. But um, I think speaking to Alan Gilpin, who, uh, his he- who is head of the Rugby World Cup, he, he, w- he spoke very, very clearly that the sport, not necessarily is, is at a crossroads, but that it needs to, needs to branch out. And what, what, what is kind of hampering the, the growth of the Rugby World Cup is the competitive nature of it and getting people interested. So today... Fiji lost to Uruguay, which is a massive, massive, massive shock. And obviously, you hark back to when Japan beat South Africa in 2015. That was kind of a watershed moment for rugby in Japan there. I think they, they what they want, above all, is for the sport to grow, for it to be more competitive. That that, that inevitably might, might affect um, more established rugby nations hosting in the future. I don't think it completely takes them off the table. Um, but it, it, it does sort of, it does put them at the, uh, you know, it does sort of add another... Yeah, sort of a, I mean, the USA, for example, is talked about as a future host, yeah. isn't it? Possibly in yeah. twenty twenty seven, and you know, the USA isn't yeah, a traditional I, rugby playing nation either. I know, obviously, they have a rugby team and they've been in most of the World Cups, etc. But it's not a, you know, it's not one of the mainstream uh, rugby rugby nations. No, it's not. But um, I, th- I think, I think, it, I think it's fair to it's fair to assume that World Rugby would um, jump at the chance for it to host there if the numbers if the numbers make sense. Um, <clears throat> I think about I think in 2015 about a million Americans tuned into the to the Rugby World Cup, which is in total isn't a massive amount, but it's still it's still not bad considering considering the sport there. Um, I think uh, just I think I think crucially as well this year, obviously no one's expecting the the USA to qualify from their pool, but I think this is the first first Rugby World Cup they've got, they've been to where most of their players are actually paid to play. So it does show that the um, it does show that the sport is growing there, and I think it's looking for that that sort of watershed moment you could say it's similar to when they hosted the um the the fifa world cup and i think it was in 1994 and that actually accelerated growth in that country 
considerably. So I, I think the US would certainly be an option going forward. Even it's got the infrastructure, it just doesn't have the um, that interest. But I think the way the tournament can potentially catch fire, I think it's very much a viable option. But I'm sure that's not yeah. what you you guys want to hear as potential hosts. No, and I I, I think I think Ed, the only counter to that is that. If ninety percent of world rugby's income is is down to the Rugby World Cup, they probably will mm. go to the highest bidder. You know, obviously Japan had deep pockets too when they bid, as well as the the more pure uh, version, which would be that they're trying to spread the the gospel of world rugby. Um, I, I've just one one last question for you from from my side. Um, you know, you look at nineteen eighty seven, you look at now, um, you look at the amount of rugby playing nations that are in the world. It hasn't substantially grown despite nine World Cups and. Mm this, you know, the, the development of Tier 2 and I'd just be interested to know where you stand on or if you view on on things like the CVC investment, potential investment in, in say, Six Nations for argument's sake or a global calendar and the growth of Tier 2 and how important that's going to be for, for World Rugby. Well, I think, yeah, the Six Nations in investment and that deal just sounds like it's going to be getting closer and closer. Are there any exclusive talks at the moment? I think Ultimately, the, the the you know the party line on that is it's going to help grow the sport, which is obviously great for great for the unions involved in that. Ultimately, it does run the risk of of, of lesser of lesser uh, rugby union union nations being left behind. Again, I think I think there's clearly there is clearly an appetite for lesser lesser nations to, to you know to compete. Ultimately, that comes down to to funding and um, just getting on a you know, making it an equal playing field, I think, and that's going to be incredibly, incredibly difficult for world rugby. I mean, especially when you consider the amount of money that the top nations bring in compared to compared to um, the lesser ones. I mean, Tonga, for example, they're they're only paying their players about five five hundred quid a week, and that's from a world rugby grant. So it, it gives you an idea of the discrepancy when you consider the amount England are going to get in bonuses if they win win the thing. Um, so I would I would I would say in terms of in terms of making it a level playing field, that's something that I think World Rugby wants to happen, and the Rugby World Cup can be um, sort of a catalyst for that. Where sort of crazy results like Japan beating South Africa four years ago and Uruguay beating Fiji sort of become more of the norm. Um, I, th- I think what's crucial is the, C- the the CBC deal. Yes, it's got huge, it's got huge, huge potential, um, but ultimately, I think I think it's important other. Other, other unions aren't left behind. And finally, Ed, uh, before we let you go, I have to ask you, who's your tip to win the tournament? Well, I'm quite handy in that, um, yes, I'm, I, uh, yes, clearly I'm English, I can't hide that, but um, fortunately my mother's side are all, are all New Zealand, so it's quite a handy second team to have. So I would be... Not bad, not ve- bad. Ve- I know, exactly. So I'd be very... I can't look, I can't look beyond... New Zealand, though, I don't think they're as strong as they were last year, uh, 2015, sorry, or 2011. But um, I think it's difficult to look beyond them in terms of the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, I hate to say it, guys, but I think you lot peaked too soon. <laughs> yes, I don't, I don't think you're. Do. <laughs> I don't think you're the only person who would uh, feel that. And certainly, New Zealand looked very good in their opener yeah, against South Africa. Yeah, um, it pains me to say it, but I think I think Wales um, might might might. Um, might be the best performing Northern Hemisphere team, but I I say this every four years. I always fancy the French, and they normally go down in spectacular fashion. But who knows? All right. This might be their year. It's only five teams, Ed. Thanks for that. I was going to say yeah. it's about half the tournament. Uh, <laughs> right there. Anyway, it's Ed. It's been a great insight. Well, I, I, and, and, and you don't want to thank you for joining us. Yeah. Right. yeah. All right. I was saying I got Namibia in the sweepstakes. So <laughs> I got Russia um, today, oh, which is great. They're yeah. gone. 
<laughs> All right. Ed Dixon, thank you for joining us. Cheers. Pleasure, guys. Take Bye. care. We're going to take a short break now. We return. We'll be joined in studio by Park Power of the IRFU and Sean Kavanagh of Pentland Brands. They'll be giving us their perspectives on RWC19. Back in a few moments. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. Now, welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Uh, delighted to be joined in studio by Sean Cavanagh, Global Director at Pentland Brands, whose uh, suite of brands includes Canterbury, which is kidding out the Irish team in this Rugby World Cup, and also by Portic Parr, Commercial and Marketing Director at the IRFU. Uh, gentlemen, you're both very welcome. Uh, Sean, we might start with you. Tell us a little bit about uh, Pentland Brands. People know Canterbury maybe or Mitre, but uh, perhaps not as familiar with Pentland. Yeah, of course. Um, Pendleton is a family-owned business. Um, it's currently in its fourth generation. Um, it's owned by the Rubin family based out of London. Um, we own a number of sports brands, uh, Cantry and Mitre, as you mentioned, but also Speedo and Swim, Berghouse and Outdoor. Uh, we recently purchased a cycling brand called Endura. Um, so we uh, cater for a multiple of sports. Oh, yeah. Uh, Mick is a big fan of Speedos, uh, I must say. So. He's, he's our target market. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, uh, among you've, I think seven teams at the Rugby World Cup, you're supplying jerseys to, including uh, including Ireland. Just tell us a little bit about how that market works. How do you? Uh, I mean, how do you target a country, let's say, and how do you win their business, and uh, how do you then, you know, use let's say Ireland as a springboard to sell jerseys? Yeah, we, like there's, um, as you said, there's seven teams that we um, we have partnerships with across uh, Rugby World Cup. Um, they vary from tier one teams like the IRFU down to tier three teams. So we look at them very differently. Um, I suppose first and foremost, we make sure that they fit with um, our values and, and what we're trying to do as a business. Um, ultimately, Cantry is a dedicated rugby brand. So um, when it comes to the likes of the IRFU, it's a key market and, and a growing market. And, you know, it's important that we have the best rugby players wearing our product, but also that we cater for grassroots as well. So obviously, we've seen some good growth numbers coming through, particularly in minis across boys and girls in Ireland. And that's extremely important to us. And then there's another angle in terms of a third tier uh, country. It's just important that we're giving back to rugby and we're supporting federations who mightn't have the same commercial um, Give us some appetite. examples of that. Well, we sponsor uh, Russia as an example and Georgia, both emerging markets. Um, rugby clearly isn't uh, one of the tier one sports within the country. Uh, sponsorship is quite difficult uh, to secure. So from a CR perspective, we, f- we think it's really important that we're catering for um, all aspects of teams during the Rugby World Cup. Um, Sean, you say you, you make um, seven of the jerseys of the, the participating uh, countries. Can you tell us a little bit about how, from a retail perspective, those countries and markets vary, as say vis-a-vis, say Ireland, the UK versus Russia, and how you distribute and how you sell product in each in each market? Yeah, of course. Um, Ireland and the UK, they're, they're home markets. We fully own the route to market. Uh, we deal directly with the trade, so that whether that be third-party retailers or through our own channels, particularly um, digital and e-com. Um, it's very established. As we know, Irish supporters in particular love to wear their colours, um, so we get great uh, revenue on the back of the partnership. Um, when it comes to other um, 
channels in other countries. Japan is a good example, obviously hosting the Rugby World Cup this year. We've got a licensed partner. So um, we work hand in hand with our licensed uh, partner who's Goldwyn, but ultimately they run and own the route to market in the country. Um, so they would deal with the retailers and the outlets on your behalf, so to speak. Would that be the way to say it? Absolutely. And they've actually a slightly different route to market. Um, Japan, again, rugby isn't as established. We all hope that the Rugby World Cup will will bring it onto a new platform. Um, but ultimately, actually, rugby and Canterbury in particular is seen more as a leisure brand. So they've got um, over 30 retail outlets in Japan and a lot of the product as well as innovative and performance-led product. Equally, there's a big lifestyle range over in Japan as well. And in terms of the US, we were talking about it earlier about growth markets for rugby and a growth of Tier 2. Um, do you see the US as a kind of a growth market for rugby or how would you see that in terms of your your, your um, relationship there? Yeah, absolutely. So we partner with both USA Rugby and Canada Rugby. Um you know, US has been talked about for a number of years now as, as, as a big growth market, and it clearly is, and World Rugby have identified it as such. Um, however, it's a bit of a slow burn, um, and we saw that with um, with soccer a number of years ago, and obviously the uh, Soccer World Cup in 1994 um, helped that escalate and grow. Um, we hope as the US team continues to progress, um, that obviously we'll see some growth figures. And, and a big enabler to that is obviously Olympics and Sevens Rugby. Um, we're seeing, obviously, the US USA compete at a very high level across men's and women's uh, when it comes to sevens rugby. And just just two two very quick questions. And um, one is um, Canterbury themselves have a uh, a partnership with World Rugby. Can you explain what what that is as well as well as been the the biggest um, maker of, of of kit? You're also a partner of, of World Rugby too. We are, yeah. We've actually got a couple of partnerships with World Rugby. So um, we kit out the referees, which is obviously good insofar as we're on the pitch for every game. Um, in addition to that, we're the partner, apparel partner of Rugby World Cup. So um, not only is seven teams and the, re- and the referees wearing our product, but also all the volunteers and, and the people on the ground who are supporting the tournament will be wearing our product. So um, our relationship with World Rugby is really important to us and something that we try and um, develop and progress as time goes on. Just before we bring in Porig, Sean, how many Irish jerseys per year, let's say, would you shift? Um, well, we don't go into the specifics. Oh, go on, of, go on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but what, what, what I will say is, obviously, uh, we see a significant uplift when it comes to a Rugby World Cup year. As we know, the Irish rugby supporters are extremely passionate. They love to wear their colours, and we've seen that historically, and we've already seen it in Japan. And um, Sell True and Sell In has been extremely positive, and I know retailers have been very happy and again through our own channels it's been exceptionally good Can I ask Sean just for obviously not for the likes of myself but the the player fit versus the the fan fit kind of can you explain are there different sizes for the more generously um, sized yeah, people? Yeah there, there are absolutely Big um, and tall I think they call them <laughs> Big and tall well I, well I suppose two two things like we feel it's um, it's really important that the consumer can um, have access and can buy uh, the players' jerseys and what the players are wearing. However, um, you'd need to be pretty fit or pretty confident uh, <laughs> to carry off the jersey. It's a tiny percentage of our overall sales, if I'm honest. You know, the replica pro jersey is where our big volume comes from. And again, for you know a gentleman like yourself, Mick, it's probably more uh, more appealing. <laughs> All right, so in speedos as well, isn't it? <laughs> speedos and a replica jersey is a perfect mix. Yeah. Moving on, Porik will uh, bring you in at this point. Uh, tell us a little bit about the commercial revenue structure at the RFU and sort of what percentage, let's say, uh, would come from a deal with the likes of Canterbury. Uh, sure. Yeah. Well, look, uh, our commercial model is pretty simple. We're we're a national sports governing body, but with a big business focus. We're not a business per se. 
uh, our, our revenue, our, our, our model effectively revolves around uh, exploiting the pro game, uh, to pay for the pro game, to create a dividend to play for everybody else. There's only about 200 pros in the country and yet there's hundreds of thousands of people playing, men, women and children. So the purpose of us being in the professional game is to create a revenue stream and what we're aiming to try and do is, is that virtuous circle of more revenue, more players, more success uh, and continuing along that line. Uh, we turn over uh, a little bit north of uh, 85 million a year uh, and like other sports, uh, it generally comes from uh, around the national team, 80 to 90% of our revenues around the national team. So match day, we play five or six times a year at home and we have our... Uh, Traditional uh, revenue streams, TV, uh, bums on seats in terms of attendances. Uh, sponsorship's a huge part of it. Uh, and uh, other match day, uh, things like hospitality, match programmes and merchandising. Right, OK. And in terms of, let's say, a deal with, with Canterbury, how important is that to you in terms of your commercial mix? Oh, it's hugely important in terms of the commercial mix. Um sponsorship is really uh, of twofold importance to us. Firstly, it's the revenue it generates uh, and that it gives us to, 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 to keep the show on the road, so to speak, and to allow the team to be the best it can be uh, with all of the, the resources it requires. But secondly, we, we don't have an advertising budget, so we rely on uh, our sponsors to promote the game and particularly Canterbury, um, you know, seeing kids walking around in green jerseys, uh, kids playing minis on a Saturday and Sunday is a huge promotional tool for us and you know we, we use unashamedly the national team is probably our biggest marketing tool uh, it's what inspires kids to, to go out to the back garden and be the next uh, Johnny Sexton or the next Keith Earls so it's hugely important to us and um, we're very grateful to them Sure so what does the Rugby World Cup obviously comes around once every four years what's that worth to you in terms of um, shillings and pence if you like uh, you know, when it comes around, uh, let's say this year, what's the Rugby World Cup com- going to be worth to the RFU this year? Uh, it's, 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 you can't really look at it like that because it's a four year cycle. Um, you know, because we have Rugby World Cup, um, we don't have November internationals. So we lose uh, out on gates and TV revenue and, and all of the, the sundries around the match. But effectively, across a year, we get gra- across the four year cycle, we get grants from Rugby World Cup. So we pretty much remain even. It's, what we try and do is, as an organisation is not have peaks and troughs because we don't spend what we don't have. Uh, and again, we're non-profit. We don't have shareholders that we pay dividends to. The money that's generated into the game pays for the game and goes back into the game. So uh, Rugby World Cup is different. Um, obviously, uh, logistically, it's, it's, uh, it's a big challenge and that it's kind of two seasons rolled into one. There's, there's no great break. And from a, a playing point of view, uh, players... Uh, finish at different times of the year uh, you know in April or May or June depending on how far we go in in the in the European Cup or in the Guinness Pro 14 uh, so some players finish early and get their holidays done and get into pre-season and others come back in a more staggered way but from an administration point of view it's like two seasons rolled into one uh, but a very exciting place to be at this time of year and in terms of uh, costs do you have to meet the costs of going out to Japan or is that is the tab picked up by the organisers? Uh, no, we have to, we have to, uh, there's a bit of a mixture. We, we have to, uh, there's a lot of preparation. Uh, it's very different. Uh, we can't wear branded gear, obviously. So there's a whole new kit out uh, for the team. Uh, and uh, we have a lot of pre-season to do. There's a lot more hotels, a lot more preparation, a lot more mini camps, uh, a lot more travel. Uh, but there, there is, some of the cost is offset by Rugby World Cup, but it, it, it is a significant uh, outlay on our behalf. Um, look, you've a, an, an envious um, 
portfolio of, of commercial partners and just out of interest you know how has this World Cup been in terms of things like the timing of the competition is that a challenge for some of your partners to activate or so forth or I suppose how do you find a space for, for everybody how does everyone find a, a role for themselves uh, it's a good question. Um, you know, uh, I, I, I suppose first and foremost, I'm very fortunate this is going to be my fifth World Cup working for the IRFU and everyone is different. Uh, the timing of this one uh, means that people aren't, I suppose, hitting the pubs the way that they would uh, when when matches are happening later in the day, perhaps. But again, it's all about planning. It's all about preparation. Um, we're very fortunate to have a family of sponsors like Canterbury and Vodafone who prepare really well, who have great clarity of purpose, know what they want to get out of um, a World Cup in terms of awareness, in terms of generating sales, generating uh, positivity. So it's all really about planning um, and uh, being able to measure uh, what, what, what they're trying to do. I suppose sponsorship has really changed over the years. Um, it's The chairman's whim has long gone out the window. It's much more sophisticated. Uh, you know, people uh, and accountants, I'm sure, in Sean's uh, organisation are looking for, you know, bang for buck and looking for uh, value for money uh, and, and reasons why they're sponsoring teams the way that they are. And that's great from our point of view because sport, probably live sport, is the last great corraller of mass markets. Everybody wants to see it live. So from that point of view, we're able to, to gather audiences for our partners to look at. And this World Cup will be no different, I'm sure. I haven't seen the viewing figures uh, for Sunday morning, but I'm sure they were huge. And no doubt next Saturday morning, uh, you know, the whole of Ireland will be up to see us play Japan at 8.15. And how does it work, I suppose, from a prize money perspective as well? The, the further we go, I presume, the, the more lucrative it is for the RFU. It's not actually. There's no prize money. We, we don't get any prize money for for participating. Uh, the, the the win for us is is that the game gets uh, greater awareness, greater promotion, uh, inspires kids to run out to the back garden, boys and girls to 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 try and emulate what they see on the pitch, uh, and that's really the payoff for us. Um, there isn't there isn't a, a big check at at the end of it all, uh, but it's about a rising tide lifting all boats. And just one one question I have just out of interest for 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 years around, you know, there's been some shocks, but there seems to be still some mismatches. Like, how important do you think, from a rugby perspective, over the next two or three World Cups, is it that investment is put into and the growth of say the seeds thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen become far more competitive in, in your own view? Yeah, look, uh, it's hugely important. Uh, we we as a tier one country, we have a huge responsibility to try and grow the game globally. Um, and I think you know the the uh, uh, people love seeing. Uh, I I you're, I didn't see it today, but Uruguay won uh, by a couple of points against Fiji, which is a huge upset. Um, and uh, it's it's great in, in in that sense to see David beating Goliath. Um, what we need is sustainable growth and growth that's managed properly. Uh, what we don't want to, to to happen in in the game is 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 for countries to get too big. Uh, too quickly because it needs to be managed but it's hugely important and something that we in the IRFU consider very important as a responsibility. Sean, can I just ask you how uh, Canterbury, let's say, executes its strategy around something like the Rugby World Cup? I mean, let's take Ireland, your partnership with the IRFU. Yeah. Um, and as Pauling mentioned, uh, the game times are a bit funny for uh, an Irish audience, uh, etc. But of course, it's not just during the tournament, it's also the build-up to the tournament. So how do you uh, how do you develop a strategy and execute on it? 
Yeah, I suppose, well, the fundamental difference with the Rugby World Cup is just the size and scale. So, as we know, it's the third largest sporting event in the world. There'll be over a billion people watching it globally. So it gives us a great opportunity to talk to more rugby consumers. Um, We just launched our campaign a couple of weeks ago, which was Be Part of It, which is really a call to arms. You know, it is a challenge in terms of in Ireland and in the UK. um, The time zones isn't ideal. um, So we want to make sure that First and foremost, the rugby community are feeling a part of us and are getting involved and whether that is going down to the local rugby club and watching it or just having family and friends around to the house and watching it as a group. Um, I suppose ultimately we want supporters to be wearing green and showing their support, ideally in Canterbury, but if not, once they're wearing green, at least that's shown um, both in the stadium and in the rugby club, it's really important. Um, and yeah, just the fundamental difference is the scale. You know, you get a lot of people who might necessarily watch a Six Nations who are suddenly interested in a huge event like the Rugby World Cup. And that gives us an opportunity to attract and then retain those people in the sport, whether that's just that they watch the sport or ideally they're playing the sport as well. And is there a huge spike in jersey sales, let's say, when uh, the likes of a Rugby World Cup comes around? I mean, you know, would you sell twice the number of jerseys you might have sold, let's say, the previous year? Yeah, generally speaking, it's double. Um, there's obviously, there's more options because I think it was mentioned there's a clean jersey, there's a Rugby World Cup jersey without the sponsor, as well as obviously having the Vodafone branded jersey as well. So it's just great for Canterbury that we're offering more uh, product and more options to the consumer. Um, so yeah, as, as an average double is a, is a fair example during what's, the Rugby World Cup. What's the average Cup. price, let's say, of a Canterbury for an adult jersey? What would you um, it, it, it varies and obviously we recommend the retail. Uh, the recommended retail for a pro jersey is is 85 euros but ultimately it's up to the retailer in terms of what they put it out for it's expensive isn't it um i wouldn't describe it as expensive i mean one thing that we talk about is our innovation and our quality um and what what we see is and we see it again in japan people wear their jerseys for years so it's not as though you know they're fading or the quality um fades away it's something that we're very proud of. We, we believe we make the best jerseys. We make um, the most durable jerseys. So, you know, you're going to be wearing this jersey for a number of years. Yeah, sure. Although, presumably, you'd like them to buy the next iteration each way um, along. We, we, we would, of course. But also, there is something nice in watching people wearing their old school jerseys as well at the same time. But ultimately, if you can get that mix right, and, you know, we constantly try and bring out new innovation. And obviously, the design moves on as Rugby World Cups goes on. But um, having a mix is a good thing as well. Sean, just out of interest, um, you're obviously Mitre is a brand in, in, in the stable um, and comparing soccer or football to rugby in terms of the scale and size of the market and where does rugby fit vis-a-vis soccer, say for argument's sake, in, in the UK? Yeah, very hard to compare if I'm honest, um, particularly within our brands. So Canterbury will be seen as a market leader within sure. rugby. And in, in general, as opposed to just Mitre, sorry, in terms of as, as in terms of scale of those. Yeah, well, well Mitre, it's, it's, it's an English brand. Um, it's specialised in footballs and, and ultimately we're competing with, you know, the Coke and Pepsi of the industry. We're, um, we have a relationship with the English FA. We sponsor the FA Cup, um, men's and women's. We sponsor the Women's Super League. Um, but when it comes to the Premiership, I mean, that is a truly globe, global sport that's watched in every country of the world. Um, and in terms of size and scale, it, it is it is clearly at a different level, although the growth that we've seen in, in rugby over the last number of years, you know, the gap is closing. And obviously in some of the key markets, rugby and particularly in Ireland, rugby is right up there when compared to football. 
Uh, Porter, can I just ask you about, uh, we were talking to Ed Dixon of uh, Sport Pro a little earlier and he was going through some of the numbers around Rugby World Cup in Japan. Big, big numbers and um, it's a big money spinner now uh, compared to, let's say, what it was in 1987. We were all disappointed to miss out on hosting the tournament uh, in 2023. We lost out to France, who I guess exercised a bit more financial muscle um, than we had available to us at the time. I'm just wondering, you know, there's a lot of speculation that the USA might host the next one after that, or certainly there'll be a host in the future. Um, is there the possibility for the IRFU um, to go again with uh, a bid for the Rugby World Cup? Or is that something that's really off the table now for a country with a small population like Ireland? Uh, it's a good question. I, I, I wouldn't say it's off the table. Uh, it's not something that we're contemplating at the moment. As an organisation, we, we, we gave it a really good shot. We were really happy with the effort we put in. Uh, and, you know, I mean, from a World Rugby point of view, they have one opportunity every four years uh, to put together, a, a, you know, a, a tank of cash to pay for the game, to put into Tier 2, to put into the development of the game. So uh, we weren't successful. We were very disappointed, like everybody else. Uh, uh, it's something we may consider again in the future, but we've no, we've no hard and fast plans now. Last question for me is, looking ahead from an IRFU perspective and commercially and, and the growth of the game, um, how important is things like the, the women's game and so forth in terms of growing that in terms of from a, a commercial perspective but also from a growing the, the fan base and growing the, the, the game of rugby? Yeah, the women's game and the development of the women's game is a huge priority for us. Um, it's really important. Uh, from a commercial point of view, uh, what we need to do is, um, as I said earlier, um, you know, sponsors and brands uh, are, are looking to, to buy into things uh, not to tick boxes. They're looking to, to get value. They're looking to to deliver growth and sales, growth and profile. So for us, the strategy is kind of top down, bottom up. We want to have the, the, the international team humming as well as it can. So it's the inspirational shop window like the men's is for, for young boys. Uh, and we also want as many kids coming through, girls coming through uh, at primary and at secondary level to create a, 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 a vibrant club from which an elite can emerge. So we're working very hard on that. Um, and we're talking to Aon is a wonderful sponsor on our women's national team. Uh, you may have seen we recently announced uh, Vodafone, uh, another four-year deal with Vodafone, and part of that deal uh, is that they're going to sponsor the women's interpros from next season, which again will add profile, will add, will add the the advertising and promotional muscle that a, that a, a company like Vodafone Ireland has. So we have big plans, uh, but again, we want to grow in a sustained way that's manageable. Um, measurable and uh, achievable. Uh, what we don't want to do is overpromise and underdeliver. Uh, so we're, we're working hard on a plan. And Porter, is there a noticeable increase in participation numbers or new kids coming into the sport when you're in a rugby World Cup year? Have you noticed that in previous tournaments? Yes. Look, you know, we're, we're every four years, as Sean has said, the Rugby World Cup has such scale. Uh, it, it generates such interest. It, it's it's the real time every four years that takes rugby off the sports pages, puts it into the business pages, the fashion pages um, and certainly with social media now, this is probably going to be the most socially mediated World Cup ever if that's a word that I can use. It is now. But you know, our, our, our clubs are, are brimming every Saturday and Sunday morning with kids, boys and girls. Our, our Aldi Play Rugby programme uh, is putting over 150,000 boys and girls at primary school through. Our Aviva Minis on a, on a Saturday and Sunday are going so well. 
Um, the, the challenge for us as an organisation is, is, is to be able to bring those through into schools, secondary schools and clubs and to keep them engaged with the game because we want people to engage with rugby from six to six nations and beyond and to really have a lifetime in rugby. All right. Porrick, uh, what are our chances in this tournament? What do you think? Uh, <laughs> I'm the eternal optimist. Fingers crossed we go well. <clears throat> right. And if Ireland doesn't win it, who, who do you tip? Uh, I wouldn't tip anybody. I'd look, the, the usual suspects, New Zealand are going to be very strong. England are a very strong team. Uh, South Africa are a very strong team. Um, it's, it's probably the most open one in a long time. Wales have been going very well and have a, ha, have a nice draw. Uh, Australia um, will always seem to peak uh, at World Cups. So it's, um, it's a very open tournament in some respects. And uh, again, fingers crossed and toes and knees and everything. And everything else, yeah. You, right. You've loads of tickets as well, I think you said earlier on, <laughs> if anybody's looking. Yeah, Sh- <laughs> Sean, um, presumably you'd like one of the Canterbury uh, teams to win. If well, it was in England, Ireland, <laughs> semi-final or, or final, who, who would you be cheering for now? Because presumably England, I mean, you'd shift a lot more jerseys than England. You're, you're one, putting me on the spot there. Um, well, I suppose Pork mentioned every team there, so he covered all bases, didn't he? Uh, apart from Japan. Um yeah, look, if, if it was England-Ireland, obviously um, my heart is Irish, so I'll be cheering for Ireland. Um, commercially, both are very strong. Um, we would love an all-Canterbury uh, final, of course we would. Um, but, you know, I've, I've always been honest and upfront with all our partners. Um, when it comes to watching rugby, I can switch off for those 80 minutes and I'm a true Irish supporter. All right, we'll leave it there. Uh, Porrick Parr and Sean Cavanagh, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to uh, Dixon, Park Parr and Sean Kavanagh. Declan Conlon produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Research was by Dan O'Neill of Tenau. Um, remember, you can follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter and Facebook each day. And you can also get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today. Email at irishtimes.com. I'm Kieran Hancock. And I'm Mick O'Keefe. Until next time, take care.